I have a sentence in my book that describes the process of institutionalization as the leader handing elites a sword while pointing the sword at himself. The way for leaders to stay in power is actually to kind of put themselves in danger and by empowering these elites. But by sharing power, they won't actually use this ability to overthrow the leader. Welcome to the season one finale of Scope Conditions. From the University of British Columbia, I'm Young Young Zhou. And I'm Alan Jacobs. Today on Scope Conditions, how and why dictators tie their own hands. By their very nature, autocracies are political systems in which power is highly concentrated. Dictators can do pretty much as they please. And so dictatorships might seem an unusual place to try to go looking for institutions, the rules and structures that limit discretion and set bounds on who can do what. But over the last two decades, political scientists studying autocracies have done exactly that. There's been what Tom Papinski has called an institutional turn in the study of authoritarianism with scholars like Barbara Geddes, Jason Brownlee, and Jennifer Gandhi, analyzing how institutions like dominant parties and elected legislatures order political life in autocracies and help ensure the survival of these regimes. Dr. Annie Mang, an assistant professor of politics at the University of Virginia, began her own research on autocratic institutions with a focus on ruling parties, But she eventually came to believe that parties and legislatures were mostly a sideshow, and that she and other scholars of autocratic institutions had been getting something fundamentally wrong. They were too focused on de jure rules that look constraining, and insufficiently focused on de facto power, on whether institutions have any impact on the distribution of actual leverage within the political system. Annie's recent book, Constraining Dictatorship is an analysis of how and why autocrats use institutions to share real power with their rivals, and of how these institutions shape the regime's long-run trajectory. Annie also argues that the institutions that matter most are devices that we usually overlook, things like succession rules and cabinet appointments. In our conversation with Annie, We probe the logic of her innovative argument and hear about how she confronted the difficulties of testing it empirically, like how to measure the elusive concept of leader strength. We also talk about the formal model she developed and how it helped her clarify the trade-offs leaders confront as they choose between short-term material gains and long-run survival in office. More broadly, this is a conversation about what it is fundamentally that allows institutions to lend order to political life, and about how we can identify meaningful institutional and political change when we see it. You'll also want to stay tuned to hear how Annie wrote the bulk of this book in a single semester. We hope you enjoy this discussion. And if you want to stay informed about season two, you can follow us on Twitter at Scope Conditions and check out our website, scopeconditionspodcast.com where you can also find references to all the academic works we discuss. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. 
Now, here's our conversation with Annie Meng. Hi, Annie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alan. Thanks so much for having me here. So I'd like to start with what I think is one of the most striking things that you say in this book. Uh, you're, you're talking about the period that most political scientists think of as the time of third wave democratization. And you write, the real story of Africa in the 1990s was not democratization. It was institutionalization. What do you mean by that? I would say that the general narrative that we usually have about the end of the Cold War was that it was this watershed moment for democratization, right? It was when autocracies all over the world fell, multi-party elections became a regular occurrence, and it was when we had this wave of democracies. That's kind of how Huntington was describing the third wave. I would argue, however, that actually the end of the Cold War was a watershed moment, not for democratization, but for autocratization. In other words, the end of the Cold War brought about institutionalization of authoritarian regimes that actually made them much more durable. I show this in my book in Sub-Saharan African Cases, but I suspect that this is a trend for a lot of the so-called third wave democracies. The most valuable lesson that autocratic leaders learned in the 1990s was that they needed to appear democratic and that they needed to share power with fellow elites in order to have a much more stable form of dictatorship. I, I argue that really the consequence of a lot of these institutional changes that occurred at the end of the Cold War was that authoritarianism actually became strengthened. In Sub-Saharan Africa, we're often trying to kind of interpret these cases as problematic or incomplete democracies, when really I think that the way that we should interpret them is looking at them like institutionalized autocracies instead. That's fascinating. How did you first realize there was something puzzling about executive institutions in autocratic settings? How did you land on this topic for your book? The way that I ended up on this topic was actually kind of a funny roundabout path. I wrote my dissertation not on autocratic executives. I wrote my dissertation on ruling parties in authoritarian regimes. So I wanted to understand why some ruling parties became institutionalized and strong. I've always been interested in kind of things that limit executive power, but in my dissertation, I, I was looking at it through the lens of parties, which at the time, that was kind of a large emphasis in the literature. But the really funny thing is, the biggest takeaway I got out of writing my dissertation was just how weak the average authoritarian ruling party is. So for instance, the average ruling party is not able to outlive and survive in power past the death or departure of its founding leader. About 60% of all ruling parties basically die with the first leader. And in fact, this is actually true even of a lot of cases that have been coded as dominant party regimes within the regime typology framework. And so the fact that so many of these parties are unable to independently survive in power really should cast some doubt on how strong and autonomous and institutionalized these organizations are. 
that was kind of my one really big takeaway from writing a whole dissertation on parties. And the other thing that I noticed was that even though a lot of the literature on authoritarian regimes is really concerned with this question of how to constrain leaders, I realized that most of the literature was looking at it through a very roundabout way in the way that I was. We were looking at these kind of external institutions, like can a legislature constrain a leader? Can the courts constrain leaders? But actually not that many people were looking directly at the executive. Like what is going on at the very top levels of government? What do these cabinets look like? Are there constitutional rules that explicitly constrain presidential power? Strangely, we just didn't have that many studies of presidents or of the presidency in authoritarian regimes, even though the presidency is obviously kind of like the apex of despotic power. So I was like, maybe I should just look much more directly at this thing that I'm trying to understand. And so that's how the book ended up focusing on the executive and, and on limits, explicit limits on presidential power in autocracies. So we're going to talk quite a bit about what it means for an autocracy to be well institutionalized. But just to help us start thinking about sort of specific countries and cases, what do you consider to be some of the world's best institutionalized autocracies today? We can generally think of institutionalized regimes as there's not just one single leader that's in power the whole time. You get peaceful transitions of power. There are rules in place that govern how power is shared and distributed. And we do see groups of elites in power together. There are elites appointed in cabinets, and it's not just about one single leader. So for instance, China is a very highly institutionalized autocracy. It has relatively stable cabinet appointments. There are constitutional limits on executive power. It has clear succession policies in place. There have been multiple leadership transitions that have been peaceful. Other cases that get discussed a lot are places like, for instance, Mexico under the PRI, Within Sub-Saharan Africa, um, Tanzania, for instance, is a case that's highly institutionalized. The same regime that took power after independence in 1960 is still in power today. And they've survived multiple leadership transitions that have all been peaceful. There are kind of routine and stable cabinet appointments made. There are constitutional rules that structure executive power, things like term limits and things like succession policies. So in these institutionalized settings, there's this orderly transfer of power, orderly succession. But we know that in a lot of cases, right, leaders face a more disorderly kind of succession. So when autocratic leaders lose power this way, how does it usually happen? And who do they usually lose power to? Basically, the literature on authoritarian regimes has identified two major kind of threats to a leader. One is the threat from above, which is to be deposed by your fellow elites. So this is where the primary coup threat occurs. The other possible way in which leaders lose power is the threat from below. So this is the kind of challenge that everyday citizens and the masses pose to the leader. But one of the main findings from the literature on authoritarian regimes is that it's really this threat from above, the threat leaders face from their fellow elites that gets materialized the most. Coups are the most common way 
in which leaders lose power. And so even though things like revolutions or kind of, you know, popular uprising gets discussed a lot more because it's maybe slightly more sensationalist, it's actually much more rare for leaders to be deposed by these kind of societal forces. We're going to be talking about situations in which leaders can lose power, but the regime can still survive, uh, or in which leaders can lose power and the regime doesn't survive. To do that, we need to have an understanding of what a regime is as distinct from a leader. Like, what does it mean for a regime to survive after the leader, who's exercised a lot of centralized control over government, has left office? What do we mean by a regime? I think that the easiest way to try to understand if a regime has survived, especially when the leader changes, is to see whether the leadership transition was peaceful and orderly, whether it occurred without any kind of conflict, and whether it occurred according to plan. So if there was a designated successor, did this person come into power? We generally understand a regime to be the same ruling elite or the same ruling coalition that remains in power. And this ruling coalition can remain in power even if the very top leader were to change. When I'm looking at leadership transitions, if I see that the transition occurred in a non-orderly way, so for instance, if there is a coup, then to me that's a very clear indication that there has been regime change. Similarly, if a leader is overthrown by the masses or in a revolution, then that is also a non-orderly leadership transition. And so to me, that would be another very clear indicator of a regime change. Institutions and institutionalization lie at the heart of your argument. Um, So we want to ask you a bit about how you think about studying institutions in autocratic settings. Sometime in the 1980s, we saw the rise of a new institutionalism in political science, um, a focus on the role of institutions in political life. But one might say that for most of the period since the 1980s, political scientists studying institutions have focused on institutions in pretty stable democratic political settings. And in, in authoritarian contexts, it's typically been assumed that institutions or rules couldn't have much of an effect on political life because autocratic leaders couldn't be constrained, that they could always just rewrite the rules whenever they wanted to. Right. But In recent years, political scientists have been taking institutions more seriously in autocratic settings. Could you tell us about this institutional turn, as Tom Papinski has called it, in the study of authoritarianism, and what kinds of institutions it has tended to focus on? The first generation of scholarship on autocracies is from the 50s and 60s, and there was a much heavier emphasis on the totalitarian mode of dictatorship. And what's really interesting about the literature that came out then was at that time, we actually didn't take dictatorships very seriously. We assumed that all countries would eventually democratize, and so we assumed that autocracies were this like weird, dysfunctional period that regimes fell into sometimes, but that they would course correct. So that's where the assumption that all institutions like constitutions or parties was just like window dressing in dictatorships and they just really didn't mean anything. So that's how we used to think about it. And then starting in the 2000s, starting with Barbara Geddes' seminal piece 
on regime types, we started to get a lot more literature in this kind of second generation that took dictatorships much more seriously because, you know, this this old assumption that everybody would just eventually democratize and that dictatorships would cease to exist obviously didn't happen. And the really important argument that came out of the second generation stuff is that institutions can matter in dictatorships. Jen Gandhi's book looks at parties and legislatures and talks about the important role that they can have in dictatorships. So now this second generation of scholarship focused on what I call the nominally democratic institutions, things like parties, ruling parties, opposition parties, elections, legislatures, courts, basically things that seem a little bit weird to be finding in authoritarian regimes because they're institutions that we associate with democracies. And so in your work, you're arguing that a focus on these nominally democratic institutions isn't enough to explain authoritarian stability. Why is that? There's two reasons why um, we need to kind of uncover the, the lid and look a little bit deeper. The first reason is that nominally democratic institutions, things like parties, legislatures, elections, constitutions, they are incredibly common in dictatorships, not just in sub-Saharan Africa, but global autocracies. So almost all autocracies have the full set of nominally democratic institutions. And this is not just a post-Cold War phenomena, importantly. This is a trend that we see in the data starting from the end of the Second World War. The average dictatorship today knows exactly how to appear democratic by having elections, by allowing opposition parties to exist and participate. So that's the first reason why I think we need to dig a little bit deeper. The second reason is because a lot of the earlier scholarship on the institutional turn in, in autocracies focuses much more on the existence of these institutions. So just did this dictatorship have a ruling party, yes or no? Did it have a constitution, yes or no? Which is great from a measurement perspective because this is a more objective way to, to code the presence of these institutions that doesn't require researchers to make subjective coding decisions, but it doesn't quite get at important questions of institutional strength and variation in levels of strength and institutionalization in these institutions. And this is really important because autocratic institutions vary a ton. So for instance, the ruling party in China, the CCP, is incredibly strong and institutionalized. So there's a lot of intra-party competition. There's rules and norms structuring promotion within the party. The party has survived many leadership transitions. Basically the same could be said of, for instance, the CCM in Tanzania, which is incredibly strong. On the other hand, there are also so plenty of authoritarian regimes where the ruling party is really weak and is just basically a mouthpiece for the leader and is unable to survive in power past the leader's death or departure. So for instance, Mobutu in Zaire, his ruling party was basically just a mouthpiece for him. In Guinea, Sakutori's ruling party, the PDG, basically just existed to promote the leader. And both of these parties were unable to stay in power past these leaders who were both deposed. And so there's just a ton of differences in the extent to which these parties have their own independent and autonomous organizations. 
The fact that all of these cases had ruling parties, but that these ruling parties differed so much in how strong and institutionalized they are, really underscores the fact that we should be looking under the hood and understanding how certain types of autocratic institutions develop their own rules and structures and become strong and independent organizations. It also underscores the fact that we need to kind of look beyond just whether these institutions exist, because these institutions do exist in the vast majority of dictatorships. So we're going to take your argument step by step, but just to preview where we're headed, can you summarize the core idea? The fundamental question I'm trying to understand in the first half of the book is why do some leaders institutionalize their regimes and others do not? And so what I mean by institutionalization is whether these leaders create executive constraints, so things that constrain their own authority. The basic argument is that leaders that come into power weak and are at high risk of being deposed at the start of the regime, these are the types of leaders who institutionalize the regime and place constraints on their own authority in order to remain in power. They do this because they need to in order to maintain support of other elites. Strong leaders who face no threat from fellow elites basically can stay in power regardless of what they do. So strong leaders don't have this incentive to institutionalize the regime when they first come into power. And then in the second half of my book, I look to see whether these executive constraints actually do anything in autocracies. I look to see whether institutionalized regimes perform better on a whole bunch of outcomes that we care about, specifically things like leader tenure, coup vulnerability, and whether the regime can undergo a peaceful leadership transition. And the main argument there is yes, institutionalized regimes do perform better on all of these outcomes that we care about. So let's let's start to unpack that argument. And I want to start with the idea that the institutions that an autocratic leader sets up can operate to constrain that leader. Um, I'm wondering how that works. So as we've talked about, um, you know, in, in a dictatorship, the idea of having rules and norms that tie the dictator's hands sounds like a contradiction in terms. And we might think that any leader who sets up supposedly self-constraining institutions can just tear those institutions down or change them when it suits the leader. Uh, and this sounds like a really hard, credible commitment problem to solve for the leader to really be able to signal to other elites or, or um, for a leader to create a situation in which their own hands are credibly tied. How do institutions achieve that in authoritarian contexts? Yeah, so this is actually a really key question that I wrestled with in the book. How does an institution credibly constrain a dictator? Dictatorships are inherently weakly institutionalized settings where promises are just really hard to make and keep. So what I argue in the book is only institutions that actually empower other elites and shift a de facto power are the ones that credibly constrain leaders. So for instance, if we think about the types of executive constraints that I look at, things like cabinet appointments, when an elite is appointed to a key cabinet position, for instance, the vice presidency or the defense minister, this elite 
gains access to all of the material resources associated with that cabinet posts. And this is especially true for the defense minister, right? They basically get control over the entire military. And considering the fact that most autocratic leaders are deposed in a coup, handing somebody else the keys to the military is an extremely meaningful way to empower them. Not only do these elites then have access to material resources, they also gain power and prestige and influence that is associated with these high-level government positions. So it's actions like this, things that actually change the underlying distribution of power between leaders and elites by empowering specific elites, that is what underlies a credible commitment in autocracies. This can also be achieved by using constitutional rules that codify and regularize elite access to power. So for instance, if you think about succession rules, it basically lays down how promotion to the highest office in the regime, the presidency, will work. It designates a de facto successor, which is often the vice president, as the replacement for the president if the president were to die or be incapacitated. And so suddenly the vice president becomes an extremely important focal point because expectations that this person will become the next leader develop because you have these very clear constitutional rules. So I argue that when institutions meaningfully shift power and give elites access to resources, that is what gives these institutions bite. A sentence that I have in the book that I think really summarizes this mechanism is that institutions matter not because they establish de jure rules, but when they affect de facto political power. So when we're talking about institutions that change the de facto distribution of power in a regime, is, is what we're talking about giving elites a credible threat of deposing the leader? Yes, that's exactly right. In fact, I have a sentence in my book that describes the process of institutionalization as the leader handing elites a sword while pointing the sword at himself. Somewhat counterintuitively, the way for leaders to stay in power is actually to kind of put themselves in danger and by empowering these elites and giving them the ability to depose the leader, but by sharing power, they won't actually use this ability to overthrow the leader. And then can this logic also help us see why simply setting up a legislature or holding elections doesn't necessarily constrain a leader? Yeah, in theory, nominally democratic institutions like legislatures could constrain leaders if these institutions were strong and meaningfully shifted power in favor of elites. However, in practice, the empirical reality is that a lot of these institutions remain quite weak in most dictatorships. When legislatures are just rubber stamp institutions and don't have any real bite, then they don't shift the de facto power in favor of elites, and then they end up not being a credible way to constrain leaders. Can you give us uh, a real world example of this mechanism of the leader handing elites the sword pointed at himself um, in action? So one of my favorite anecdotes of a leader creating an institution that comes around and bites them in the butt <laughs> is the creation of succession policies in Cameroon. 
Cameroon's first president, Ahijo, he created succession policies, constitutional succession policies, that designated that his prime minister would be the constitutional successor. And he appointed Paul Bia as his prime minister. Paul Bia is still the current president of Cameroon. And so what happened was this first president, Ahijo, actually voluntarily retires, citing health issues. But after he retired, he kind of assumed and I think hoped that he would still be able to control Bia behind the scenes. He remained the head of the ruling party and he tried to make the claim that actually the head of the ruling party was where the, the real reins of, of power were held. However, this totally did not work. So after he retired, his successor, Paul Bia, came into office. He immediately reshuffled the cabinet and he basically threw out his predecessor's top people, and he replaced them with his own allies in the cabinet, and he undertook a lot of reforms to help him consolidate his power as the new president. And so Ahijo, realizing that his scheme just was not working, he tried to stage a comeback. He, he tried to be, he was like, hey guys, I actually feel better now. <laughs> just kidding. And he tried to edge Bia out, but it completely failed because he was shut out by the succession policies that he himself created during his tenure. Paul Bia was able to use the resources, the material resources that he now had access to, to get his own guys into the cabinet, to shut out his predecessors allies out of the cabinet and to consolidate his power upon the leadership transition and it actually got to the point where there was an attempted coup in the 1980s in Cameroon that was linked to Adhijo and this coup ultimately failed um, and Adhijo ended up being exiled. I think that that's just like a great example of a leader who creates an institution and then it totally works against him working perfectly right like the institutions worked as they were supposed to work but it's an example of something that grew beyond the leader's control okay so given that story why would autocratic leaders be motivated to place constraining institutions on themselves in the first place it happens when they come into power initially weak and are likely to be deposed from elites so the logic there is when the leader is initially weak the way that they buy support from other elites is basically by offering up these key power sharing positions. When you appoint an elite to the cabinet, especially if it's a key cabinet position, this elite not only gets access to all of the rents associated with office, it, you also enhance their ability to overthrow you. So the fact that these elites are then armed with a credible threat of rebellion is the mechanism that makes this promise of future power sharing credible because the elite knows that they can basically continue to threaten the leader if the leader tries to renege on promises to share rents and spoils from office. However, it's only weak leaders who actually face a threat from their fellow elites that have to undertake this exercise of institutionalizing and sharing power. When leaders come into office already strong and really don't face a credible threat from any fellow elite, then these leaders have absolutely no incentive to institutionalize because they can stay in power regardless of what they do. Elites really don't pose a credible threat to them. And what do we mean by strong leaders versus weak leaders, like conceptually? 
I think about leaders' strength and weakness as primarily the extent to which they're at risk of being deposed by fellow elites. So a weak leader is one who faces a high risk of removal. A strong leader is a leader that has basically already either eliminated any possible challengers or already consolidated power and does not face a credible threat from fellow elites. A concrete example of this is, for instance, returning to the Cameroon example. The founding leader of Cameroon, Ahijo, came into power fairly weak, and this is in part because of the history of independence in Cameroon. So Ahijo was not one of those freedom fighters. He was not kind of a nationalist independence hero. In fact, he was seen as a very close ally with the outgoing French colonial authorities. So he came into office extremely weak and unpopular, actually. He basically inherited his position from the colonial authorities. So he came into office having very few allies and at really high risk of being deposed. On the other hand, if we think of the nationalist freedom fighters. So, for instance, Ufoy Boigny of the Ivory Coast. Not only did Boigny found the pro-independence party in the Ivory Coast, he also was the leader of a pan-African nationalist movement, and he was seen as the, the sole founding father of the country. He basically faced no competition from other elites, and he was the single strong figure in Ivorian politics at the onset of independence. And so Ufoy is someone who came into power really strong and he just didn't need to institutionalize very much in order to stay in power. You also argue that not all institutions that look constraining are in fact stabilizing. You draw a distinction, for instance, between succession procedures and term limits imposed on the presidency. Now, on its face, a term limit sounds more constraining because it forces a leader out of office, seemingly assuring elites that someone else is going to be entering office after a fixed period of time. But you argue that term limits are actually less effective in generating, for instance, peaceful transfers of power than succession procedures are. Can you explain why? I love this comparison between succession rules and term limits because I think that it does a great job of illustrating this theme that it's not de jure rules that matter, it's whether these rules change de facto power. So if we take a step back um, and we think about what these two different types of constitutional rules are doing, succession procedures actually empowers a specific elite, the successor. Succession rules are basically saying I have a successor, this is the person who is in that position. My designated successor suddenly has a huge incentive at making sure I don't try to overturn or change these succession rules because they are the person that has the most to lose if anything goes wrong with the regime or if succession rules are to be removed. So now let's contrast this with term limits. Term limits in the absence of succession rules is just kind of an open promise that I'm going to step down if I'm the leader. But if I just have term limits and I don't have succession rules, then elites still have a really big coordination problem, which is if the leader tries to get rid of term limits, who actually loses out the most? If none of us know who the successor is, am I the one who's losing out on potentially becoming the next leader? It's really hard to know. So I think that this is an excellent example of how not all constitutional rules have an equal amount of bite. And in fact, interestingly, in cases where the leader tries to remove term limits, 
in a lot of cases where they are unsuccessful at removing term limits are cases where there was a uh, constitutionally designated successor who was the vice president who was the person who stopped this attempt at a term limit removal because again that is the person who has the most to lose if the president then decides to try to stay in office forever. But in your argument, why do elites worry about constraining weak leaders? Why not just use the threat of deposing them to work out a series of favorable bargains for rents and so on? The danger of the threat of rebellion is that it might disappear. So elites might be powerful today and they might pose a credible threat of rebellion to the leader today, but that might change tomorrow and they might lose their ability to threaten the leader, which in fact is often what happens. So we have existing research that argues that elites actually tend to be the most organized at the height of the regime. And the longer the incumbent is in power and the more time the incumbent has to kind of use state resources to consolidate their power, the weaker elites get over time. So the risk of just relying on kind of raw power without institutional guarantees is that your raw power might disappear tomorrow. So that's a, a really important reason why elites often feel the need to lock in these power sharing mechanisms at the start of the regime. So you're arguing that when leaders come into power in a position of strength, they don't need to constrain themselves in order to maintain that hold on power. But leaders who come into power in a position of weakness facing a high threat of being deposed, choose to institutionalize their regimes in order to reassure other elites and to maintain their own hold on power. So what do decisions to institutionalize or not mean for the overall regime outcomes? In the book, you point out that this leads to a sort of irony when we look at the longer-term trajectories of weak leaders as compared to strong leaders. Could you draw up that irony for us? Sure. So what we end up seeing is that regimes that have weak leaders to begin with actually end up often being strong and durable authoritarian regimes in the long run. And that's because weak leaders are the ones who are incentivized to institutionalize at the start of the regime. On the flip side, regimes that start out with a incredibly strong founding leader end up actually being very unstable in the long run because these very strong leaders don't have an incentive to institutionalize, and so they don't. And the regime always ends up dying with these strong personalist leaders. They have no way of managing the transition. And so there is this kind of ironic twist of fate where regimes that start off somewhat weak end up often being more durable in the long run, and regimes with a very strong founding father end up dying with that initial leader. Thank you for laying out so clearly and succinctly the incentives that weak versus strong leaders face and the, the trajectories that the regimes go through once they make these decisions of institutionalizing. You know, in the book, you ground your theory in a formal model. Um, we've just been talking through your argument informally. And of course, it's hard to present a formal model in a podcast. But in general terms, we're curious what you feel the formalization itself contributes, what do you think would have been lost or less clear or convincing for readers without the model? 
And are there aspects of your argument that only became clear to you after working through the model? I think that formal models are really great at highlighting the internal logic of a theory. A question that I, I used to get a lot, and I can see why there is a temptation to think this way, is I often would get people asking me, well, letting go of power feels really scary for leaders. So wouldn't it be the case that only strong leaders feel secure enough to let go of a little bit of power? It seems potentially dangerous and a bad idea for leaders to let go of power if they're already in danger. The model illustrates why the precise opposite is true. Strong leaders don't have a need to let go of power because they can stay in power no matter what. And so if the leader doesn't need to share power with elites, then they won't have the incentive to do it because one trade-off of having to share power with elites is that the leader can't take all the spoils for himself. And so what I really like about the model is it explains why this seemingly counterintuitive argument of letting go of power when you're already weak would be true. The other thing that the model clarifies, and again, I think that this is a really great benefit of models, is it highlights the trade-offs that leaders face when deciding whether to institutionalize. The model basically shows that there's a pro and a con for institutionalization for leaders. The benefit of institutionalizing is that the leader gets to stay in power for longer periods of time because they're able to retain support from elites. However, there is a cost of institutionalization, which is the more the leader empowers other elites, the more stuff they have to share with them. A really strong leader doesn't need to give any rents to elites. They can just keep everything for themselves, but a, a leader who institutionalizes has to actually share more stuff with elites. And so it's this trade-off that leaders are trying to balance when deciding whether or not to make this institutional decision and whether they want to try to stay in power for short periods of time but try to grab everything or stay in power for longer periods of time, but they have to share more of the goodies with the other elites. Let's turn now to your empirical analysis. And I want to start by talking about how you measure executive constraint. One of the points you make in the book is that we're going to get things wrong in terms of what the effects of these institutions are if we only look for the presence of institutions or their de jure qualities, and that we need to examine the content of these institutions in relation to what institutions do to the de facto distribution of power. So first of all, thinking about the current measures of executive constraint from standard data sets that we have, like Barbara Geddes's regime typologies or from polity, what are these measures missing that's important for your study? One of the big themes that I emphasize is that it's not just about the presence of institutions, we really got to look at the content. And so specifically, when I look at constitutional rules, I don't just look to see whether there is a constitution or not, because in fact, most autocracies have constitutions. I look to see whether there are specific rules that structure or limit executive power. So specifically, the two constitutional rules that I look at are whether there are succession policies in place and whether there are 
term limits. I also look at informal mechanisms of power sharing as another type of executive constraint. And here I look at two key appointments in the presidential cabinet. So I look at whether an elite was appointed to the vice presidency and whether an elite was appointed to the defense minister. I also look to see whether these appointments were stable or whether these elites were being shuffled um, in these positions because sometimes a strategy leaders take is they'll constantly shuffle who is in these cabinet positions to prevent any one particular elite from amassing too much power. So those are my four main indicators of executive constraints. What was really important to me when I was coding this data is that it was collected in a really clear and objective way that can be replicated by other researchers. This kind of objective um, approach is different than a lot of the current data sets that we have been using, data sets that measure authoritarian regimes or authoritarian institutions. So things like regime typologies are kind of coded subjectively by researchers. And, you know, there are a lot of cases that are just really hard to make judgment calls sometimes. Like no matter how much you know about a case, it's often just really hard. And, and especially when these cases come from different regions, it can be really difficult for researchers to kind of know that they're making the exact right judgment call when they're coding cases by hand. What was really important to me when I was coding this data is that I didn't make any kind of subjective judgment calls as to whether something fell into a particular category or not. I was reading constitutions and seeing whether these rules were in place. I was looking at cabinet lists and seeing whether elites were being appointed to these positions. Another important thing to note is that it was really important to me that the kind of indicators that I was creating were disaggregated. So another really common data set that people use is polity. And particularly within polity, the xconst variable is the one that kind of approximates executive constraints. But the problem with that variable is that it's aggregated. What goes into xconst is basically a lot of different types of executive constraints and we're giving regimes this one general score that's not being broken down. And so in fact, when you compare my data against the xconst variable, what I see is that xconst is more closely correlated with things like term limits, less so with key cabinet appointments, less so with succession procedures. And so I think that's kind of a potential risk when we just have kind of one aggregated score given to regimes. The other thing that I see when I compare my data against the regime typologies framework, what I see is that a lot of cases that have been coded as dominant party regimes, which are kind of generally understood to be highly institutionalized regimes, a lot of dominant party regimes are actually fairly uninstitutionalized, um, is what I see when I compare my data set against regime typologies. Surprisingly, the other thing that I find is that sometimes some regimes that have been coded as personalist or military regimes actually do have a number of these executive constraints in place. So I'm seeing some discrepancies across different regime categories. So Annie, where did you get the data on what executive constraining institutions were in place over a 50-year period in the 46 sub-Saharan African countries you study? Did you have to generate these data yourself? How did you code it? I, I worked with a team of research assistants 
and we spent the year coding this data set. So the cabinet data came from a set of volumes called the Europa publications. And so it was a bunch of volumes that had complete lists of cabinets, so all the positions and all the names of people who are in these cabinets. And it came from a huge stack of books in the back corner of the library that were very dusty. And so I worked with my team of RAs to digitize these records. And from there, we were then able to code whether these key cabinet positions were filled. We were able to look to see who was in these positions and whether it was the same person as the person who held this position the year before. We also had access to the Comparative Constitutions Project Repository, which is this amazing resource that has all the constitutions of the world online. And so using these different sources, we were able to read these constitutions and look for the two main rules that I was interested in, whether term limits existed and whether there was a constitutional procedure in place. What was really important to me when we were coding these things is that the data be generated in a really clear and objective way that would eventually be replicable by other researchers. So we didn't have to make any judgment calls when we were coding any of this data. We were just looking to see whether a constitutional rule existed or not, or we were just looking to see whether an elite was appointed to a particular cabinet seat. One of the things I'm finding interesting here is that on the one hand, you're saying we can't just code for the presence of institutions. We need to code for their content. At the same time, you're making a case for a measurement strategy that involves, in some sense, just an objective coding as to whether a particular rule is present or not without relying on, let's say, you know, an expertise-informed judgment about that rule and perhaps how it's actually operating on the ground. Those two claims sort of seem to be in tension with each other. I'm wondering, is, is part of the theory of measurement kind of underlying your project that the institutions you're interested in have a kind of self-enforcing quality such that it is actually, in some sense, their mere existence that does the work of, let's say, solving the coordination problem for elites? So yes, I definitely am arguing that the institutions that I'm focusing on do have a self-reinforcing mechanism in that because I argue that these are the institutions that actually empower elites, give them access to material resources, make them a focal point, shift de facto power, these are institutions that will indeed be self-reinforcing. Um, I totally agree that there is this tension between the measurement strategy and the kind of logic of the mechanism. The criticism is kind of well taken. It's maybe oversimplifying things a bit too much. I think that the main point of what I'm trying to say is that I think earlier data sets were kind of taking a step back and taking a first very reasonable step of just looking to see whether these institutions existed without getting into the more fine-grained details of the kind of rules and mechanisms that go into what makes these institutions exist. And so what I'm just trying to say by arguing for a move from existence to content is for us to kind of try to get into the details more. 
But I, I totally agree that what I am doing is looking for the existence of these rules. I just think that there is value to kind of looking for the existence of more detailed rules, specifically rules that actually affect the distribution of power. So turning to your statistical analyses, one focus is testing the theory's prediction about when leaders will institutionalize. Can you give us an overview of how you test that argument? A really important aspect of testing the argument was coming up with good measures of leader strength, which is pretty hard to do. The one thing about my project I realized as I was working on it was I picked both a DV and an IV that were both really hard to measure, regime institutionalization on one hand and leader strength on the other. The distribution of power is a variable that gets thrown around all the time, especially in formal models, but we don't actually have a bunch of great ways of measuring the distribution of power and leader strength. So this was actually a real challenge when I was when I was working on the empirics of my project. So the way that I approached it is I looked at the ways in which leaders came into power as a proxy for how strong these leaders were relative to other elites. So for instance, one strategy that I use is I focus on just the subset of post-independence leaders. So the first leader to come into power after independence was granted. And I basically make the case that out of these initial post-independence leaders, there's basically two different types of leaders. So on one hand, there's the kind of nationalist leader who really spearheaded a, a mass mobilization movement. So these are people like Ufwe in the Ivory Coast, like the first uh, president of Senegal, like Nkrumah in Ghana. These were strong nationalist leaders. I argue these are the types of leaders who are kind of initially strong. So we contrast this with the types of leaders who were not nationalist heroes, but they were just kind of closely aligned with the outgoing colonial authorities and essentially inherited their positions of power. So think of the first leader of Botswana or the first leader of Cameroon. So I argue that this subset of leaders are, are initially weak. So that's one way in which I, I tried to get at leader strength. Another strategy was I compared founding leaders against later successors who came into power. Founding leaders tend to be highly influential. They're seen as like the founding fathers of the country. And especially when there's this kind of initial exuberance around independence, these leaders tend to take power extremely strong. Contrast this with successors who come into office way later down the road when like initial excitement over independence has waned. And actually, interestingly, successors are often by design weak because presidents often pick weak elites to be their successors because they don't want to be overthrown by their successors. So successors are often just by design weaker elites as well. So that's kind of another comparison that I make when trying to tease out what leader strength means empirically. So what I do is I have a couple of different ways to measure leader strength, mostly based off of the ways in which the leader came into power. And I compare levels of institutionalization. I look to see whether there are differences in whether these strong or weak leaders had constitutional rules in place or made these elite appointments. And in general, I do find that stronger leaders are less likely to have succession rules in place or term limits in place, and they're also less likely to make stable appointments to the two main cabinet positions I focus on, the vice presidency and the defense minister. 
you then turn to assessing the theory's claims about institutionalization's effects, uh, its effects on regime stability and its effects on peaceful leadership succession. And one empirical issue that you highlight here is the endogeneity of institutions, the very fact that institutionalization itself arises from the strategic calculations of leaders who may be weak or strong, and that that makes it tricky to estimate the effects of institutionalization. Could you walk us through what exactly the inferential challenge is here, and and also how you think that that issue has affected the findings of past studies? Trying to estimate the effect of institutions on regime outcomes can be tricky because, as I spend the entire first half of my book arguing, these institutional decisions are endogenous to the threats that leaders face, which is very much tangled up in these outcomes that we're interested in. So the way that most past studies have done it is they basically have just put regime outcomes on the left-hand side of the regression equation and institutions on the right-hand side of the regression equation. But the problem with this approach is if you do that, what you actually do is you underestimate the effect of institutions because strong leaders can stay in power no matter what, despite differences in institutional decisions. Strong leaders are able to stay in power even if they don't institutionalize. Weak leaders who institutionalize can also stay in power, but without separating these two different types of leaders, they often have very similar looking regime outcomes precisely because they are smart enough to make the right institutional decisions for themselves. So how do you address the endogeneity of institutions in your empirical analysis? You know, of course, institutions are not randomly assigned. We know that leaders are choosing these institutions. How do you think about the endogeneity here? So what I do when I'm trying to estimate the effect of institutionalization on regime outcomes is I I just separate out strong leaders and weak leaders. So what I find is that initially weak leaders who do institutionalize do face better regime outcomes. So these institutions are working for these weak leaders who have the incentive to institutionalize. Strong leaders in general just don't institutionalize, as I argued in the first half of the book, but this doesn't really impact their ability to stay in power because the very reason why they didn't institutionalize in the first place was because they knew that they didn't have to, to stay in power. So to take a step back from the details of your study, your argument is about how this institutionalization has helped some leaders stay in power longer, uh, made coups rare, made leadership succession more peaceful. And one thing I'm wondering is whether institutionalization in autocracies is also bad news for the prospects for democratization. Does institutionalization help autocracy last longer and in doing so stave off the very threats that could lead to democratization? I definitely think that this dynamic is there. I think that institutionalization does allow autocracies to stay in power for longer. I think that it allows them to survive leadership transitions. And it's generally a stabilizing force 
for autocratic regimes. So I think that in that sense, it definitely staves off democratization. However, I think that we often have too rosy of a picture when it comes to democracies and democratization. True democratization is actually really rare and a lot of countries that we have historically coded as democracies don't actually stand up to rigor when we take a closer look. So for instance, a lot of these third wave democracies, as I've already argued, many of which were in Sub-Saharan Africa, yes, these countries introduced multi-party elections and they adopted all of the kind of nominally democratic institutions that we've been talking about, but really the same elites stayed in power, right? Including a lot of the same incumbents, despite the fact that they put in place democratic procedures on paper, incumbent turnover is still actually not super common on the continent, right? So this theme of incumbents who were able to adapt to changing global norms and their ability to embrace a lot of the language and institutions of democracy while staying in power, I think that that's a pretty universal theme. And so, yes, I do think that institutionalization is bad for democratization, but also I think the thing to remember is that things that we historically thought of as democratization or democracies really kind of like might be more authoritarian than we otherwise might think when we look a little bit more closely. So you're arguing that um, initially strong leaders, they don't need to institutionalize, they don't really have the incentive to power share with other elites. A few months ago, we had Ken Apollo on this podcast, and using cases from Africa, specifically Zambia and Kenya, he argues that strong legislatures that are more independent from the executive emerge because strong presidents feel secure enough to give their legislatures some independence, specifically means independence. Yeah, and this sounds like a departure from your argument, um, because you're arguing that it's actually the stronger leaders that don't need to power share and the weaker leaders that do. So at first glance, there sort of seems to be a tension between the logic of power sharing that you're outlining and the one undergirding Ken's argument. Um, could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So Ken and I actually did an author exchange in the Democracy and Autocracy newsletter, and it was super interesting to think about our books in conjunction with each other, precisely because we actually make opposite predictions. I predict that weak leaders institutionalize their executives, and Ken argues that strong leaders strengthen the, the legislature. So we have a dialogue about this, and we concluded that there might be a couple different things going Going on. First of all, I think a really important insight that comes out of our exchange is that different types of elites pose different kinds of threats and different levels of threats for leaders. So for instance, when I look at cabinet officials, cabinet officials, particularly people like the Minister of Defense, really pose a high coup risk for leaders. Versus if we think about the legislative risk, 
Coups kind of rarely emerge from the legislature. The legislature might pose more of an electoral risk, and this is becoming much more relevant as most countries in Sub-Saharan Africa now have to hold multi-party elections. But the nature of the threat posed by different types of elites is very different, and so leaders may be making different kind of institutional decisions depending on how they need to manage different types of elites. Another thing to consider is that we actually think about leaders strength a little bit differently. I think about leader strength primarily in terms of the coup threat. So I think of a strong leader as one that basically doesn't face a coup threat from fellow elites versus when Ken is thinking about leader strength and the relationship between leaders and legislative elites, I think he's thinking a little bit more of the leader's ability to manage and control legislative elites. So there are slight differences in how we're conceptualizing leader strength. We, we won't ask you to respond to all of our previous guests on scope conditions, but I'll for the listeners, uh, I'll just point out that our conversation with May Hassan is also about the dilemmas that arise with power sharing as they relate to control over the administrative state. So President John Magufuli of Tanzania just passed away in March, and he was quite a divisive leader who, you know, many have have said made several authoritarian turns throughout his tenure, um, moving Tanzania towards what seems like a more personalistic rule. And he succeeded by Tanzania's first female president, Samia Saluhu Hassan. Can your work give us any insights on Magafuli's tenure, um, any predictions on Hassan's approach to the presidency, maybe the long lastingness of the regime of the ruling party, the CCM? What's really interesting about Tanzania is I think that it's kind of like a microcosm of what I'm seeing in the current debate and discussions of democratic slash autocratic erosion. And a country like Tanzania is an autocracy, it's not a democracy. But in the last couple of years, we've just seen a huge amount of interest in the topic of democratic erosion, largely in part because I think everyone panicked when Donald Trump was elected to the presidency. What's really interesting is when I look at the data on executive constraints in Tanzania, I don't actually see any changes in the last couple of years. So despite the fact that Magafuli was discussed as a populist leader, he made seemingly several moves towards personalism, it's important to note that the executive constraints that I study did not change under his tenure. So for instance, constitutional rules, succession rules, term limits remained constant. He didn't try to overturn term limits. Cabinet appointments have been stable this entire time. So key cabinet appointments to defense, finance, foreign affairs, all of these high-level cabinet appointments, elites have been appointed to these positions the whole time, and these appointments have been incredibly stable. In other words, I'm not seeing the removal of executive constraints in Tanzania. This actually mirrors what I'm seeing in the global data set of executive constraints that I'm building now. I don't actually see a sharp increase 
in the removal of constraints in the last couple of years. And so this really goes against this narrative of like a global democratic recession that we've seen in the last couple of years. And so I think that there's two possible things that might be going on. And I think that it's something that we should be careful of. The first possibility is that there's just been a lot of attention paid to a couple of notable cases. Donald Trump coming to power, Xi Jinping removing term limits, right? And it could be the case that a couple of high profile examples are just sucking all the oxygen out of the air and we're just paying a ton of attention to them. What's really important to say there is that some amounts of institutional removal has just always happened. So yes, Xi Jinping removed term limits, but other presidents have removed term limits once in a while in previous years as well. So what we should be thinking about is whether there are different rates in the extent to which these things are happening. And I'm not really seeing a significantly different rate of the extent to which institutions are being removed. So for instance, at least when it comes to executive constraints that I look at. So for instance, cabinet appointments have been very stable over time. Constitutional succession procedures have also been stable over time. There has been a slight increase in term limit removal in the last couple of years. However, definitely not back to pre-1990 levels. Moreover, leadership tenure has actually been getting shorter rather than longer. So I think it's, it's important to kind of look systematically at data and make sure that we're taking these global trends into account as opposed to focusing too much on particular cases. So what's really interesting um, about Hassan is that I would say the biggest takeaway right now is that because she did get to succeed Magafuli and she gets to serve out the remaining four years of his term, that gives her plenty of time to consolidate her own position and she's very likely to become the first female president of Tanzania. And what's really notable actually about this case is that Tanzania is a little bit of an outlier actually when it comes to succession politics. The constitutionally designated successor in Tanzania is the vice president. In most cases, the safest way for a transition to happen in a regime is to have a succession plan and to follow it. So if the vice president is the constitutionally designated successor, the safest way for the transition to go peacefully is if the vice president just ends up becoming the next leader. What's interesting about Tanzania is that that has mostly not been the case. The presidents that have come to power have held other cabinet positions. So they were generally not the designated successor. I think that this speaks volumes to the strength of the CCM and the ability of the ruling party to manage competition and factionalism that arises within the party and arguments about who gets to be the next leader. So in that sense, Tanzania is actually a little bit of an outlier in terms of succession politics. But then what's notable about Hassan is that it will actually go according to plan. She was the constitutionally designated successor, the vice president who took power, and she now has all of the resources she needs and the time she needs to really kind of consolidate her position and is very likely to be the next leader, I think. It might be interesting for our listeners to hear a bit more about your writing process. You've told us that this book was not simply a revision of your dissertation. There was a big change away from studying ruling parties to regime executives. So here you are as a new junior faculty member having to write a manuscript kind of from scratch. Um, how did you get that done? I'm sort of in a similar place myself, so I'd, I'd just really love to hear your advice. 
The first thing that I did when I realized that I wanted to make this shift was put together the new data set and expand on the data set that I had collected in grad school. I really liked starting with just descriptive information. I feel like that just gives me a really kind of clear sense of what's going on. So I hired a team of RAs when I got to UVA and we spent a year collecting the data. And then even though I, I was shifting my empirical focus from parties to executives, from the dissertation to the book, a lot of my thinking didn't necessarily have to go entirely from scratch because I've retained this kind of theoretical interest in thinking about constraining leaders. And so the empirical shift was mostly due to my realization that parties were weaker than I thought they were. I just realized that they weren't the best vehicle to study how leaders are constrained. So it was nice in that I was able to kind of draw a lot of theoretical parallels that I had already been thinking about from my dissertation, but just kind of shift my empirical focus. And so my team and I took about a year to collect the data set. And then from there, so this was my second year at UVA when I was writing the manuscript. I was on a 2-1 teaching schedule for that year, but I convinced my department to let me do 03 instead. So I was not teaching in the fall. And basically I just took the fall semester and I wrote the whole manuscript. And it was basically the only thing that I did that semester. And I, I actually took a lot of inspiration from really prolific fiction writers. Like I, I really love Stephen King. And I read that he writes 2000 words a day. That's what he needs to do, and that's his job. And he has this really great book, it's called On Writing, and it talks about his writing process. And he has this part in the book where he talks about how the most important tool for a writer to have is a door. You need to go into a room, you need to shut the door, and you just need to write. He makes this really great point about like, don't be precious with your writing, like just get the words on paper. And I think that all of that advice was so important for me to just get the manuscript out. I was just trying to be really disciplined and like just getting those words on paper every day. And I, I was trying not to worry too much about the quality. Like I know it's hard to turn a blind eye <laughs> to quality, but I actually did feel that that helped me just like get it done. The other thing that I did that was super helpful was I scheduled a book conference for that spring. And I invited Milan Swolek, Jennifer Gandhi, Rachel Riedel, and Scott Gelbach to the book conference. And I told them I would have the manuscript for them to read by January. And so that was also a really great incentive structure. <laughs> I, I was like, I need to write something good <laughs> for these top scholars to read at my book conference. And so I felt like those things really just kind of helped me get the thing done. And of course, teaching three classes at once in the spring was kind of awful. But at least I, I got to hold the manuscript script in my hands. You handed your book conference attendees a sword pointed at yourself. Exactly. <laughs> and even though you said, you know, you weren't precious about quality, this is a really quality book. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show, for sharing this with us. I'm a huge Stephen King fan, so. He's, he's a great writer, and yeah. I'm amazed that he writes 2,000 words a day. That's. I mean, his books are always huge, so no wonder. This is, this is how he gets it done. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Annie. Thank you so much for having me. I had so much fun and this was awesome. And I had such a, I really enjoyed our discussion. That's our episode for today. Our editing and sound production are by Renaud Chacoin-McKenzie. 
Thanks to UBC for financial support. And our theme music is by Great North Sound Society. Thanks very much for listening. We'll talk to you again soon.